you can check your smartwatch, check your smartphone, or check your online calendar. All three will tell you the same. It's time for the weekly wrap-up. And no planning, production, or preparation could set me up for the announcement today, this afternoon, by Stephen Amell, that following a limited 10-episode run, next fall, the Green Arrow will come to a close. Approximately 18 minutes after the news was announced on Twitter, Stephen Amell himself appeared in an online video for over nine minutes, thanked fans, crew, production, and revealed that before announcing the news online that he had met on the original soundstage where Arrow shot its first episode to thank the crew and announce the news, before then heading to the place where he has made one of his strongest connections with the fan base for Arrow and the DC Universe, which is on social media via Twitter and, as I described, also in an online video. It was impressive to see how moved and tearful he was, even as he admitted that he was speaking about something that is still almost a year away and will eventually reach him, and yet even now the emotional impact was both compelling and stirring. For all the bravado that he might display on cross-television promotion like WWE squaring off with wrestlers and other quote-unquote macho men, this softer side of Stephen was evident as he moved from the discussion of thanking his friends and producers and those who helped him begin to describing the changes in his life from when he began working and playing and being the Green Arrow because he had been dating at that time and over the course of the many seasons he has now become a husband and a father and that the time required for him to be in Vancouver has become simply more than he would like to invest when he could be investing it into his family, his children, and their future. And while he acknowledged that this was a difficult decision for him to have to make, he also pointed to the fact that when he looked at why he was making this decision, he felt that he was doing it for the right reasons. Now, I could go on for hours and hours about the many different things that Arrow has come to mean for DC Universe, the Arrowverse that it spawned and helped foster, but also the many things that Arrow helped to influence and inspire. But I know that this is a topic that we'll be covering this Saturday at the DCM podcast, and it's with that understanding that I'm willing to pause in my reflection and, well, somewhat bewilder and amazement at this recently announced news because I know that with the group I'll have a chance to speak more completely on a greater range of the topics that I've only just had a chance to brush on in this quick announcement. A 
Among my weekend highlights was recording a new episode of the DCM podcast. The gang sat down as host Steve J. Ray walked us through some of the biggest news, highlights, and topics of conversation. We covered Aquaman 2 and the possibility of the others making an appearance in that sequel. We also had a chance to cover news that Constantine just might be coming back. That's right. Matt Ryan, the character who created the uh, original series a few years back before it was unfortunately canceled after just one season, kept the character alive with appearances on shows like Arrow and then later as a recurring guest star on Legends of Tomorrow. We also talked about Todd McFarlane and his dream and goals or ambitions when it comes to his new DC collectibles line of characters. And then we just dug down into some of the newer concepts that are uh, appearing in DC Comics, such as the young adult title Mira, which focuses on the future wife and queen of Aquaman and Atlantis, respectively, in a different origin, where she is a member of um, one cast of a family who has been sent to assassinate a royal heir, who is actually Arthur Curry. As these things so often tend to happen, instead of killing him, Mira falls in love. And DC promoted this new project with a very eye-catching and ear-catching trailer. And by creating this young, determined voice of Mira, I feel that it was a very well-marketed, um, book for that young adult audience, and I was really glad to hear Joseph uh, make similar points. Doubling back on the news about Matt Ryan and Constantine, I got really excited, I mean, embarrassingly so, at the idea that Matt Ryan would be returning as Constantine, and much of my inspiration or enthusiasm came from the fact that I have really loved Matt Ryan when he plays Constantine. I feel that every part of it is something that he just embraces in a way that I did not experience with Keanu Reeves in the movie Constantine, nor was it something that I felt that any other actor that I've seen would be capable of embracing um, all the facets of Constantine. And I also loved that even though he was a recurring guest star on different shows in the Arrowverse, that on Legends of Tomorrow, he was still as much of the outlandish character that we had seen, or I had seen, from the first season and the comic books. He makes the worst mistakes plays too lightly with the powerful forces of 
both good and dark magic. He makes really poor relationship choices with both women and men. And what I loved was that the relaunch of this show wouldn't feature a Constantine who had been homogenized or made more palatable for a larger range or percentage of viewing homes based on milder approaches or uh, expressions of Constantine, but that by seeing him embracing and the writers and um, producers and directors, whoever's involved in these decisions, but their collective agreement to show more about the things that make Constantine this great, difficult, frustrating character, and by doing that, showing us so many things that make him someone, at least I, want to keep watching. And that by doing so, the character, in my belief, will be returning to the screen just as messed up as they were when they left. And we as an audience, all that much better for it. And all the things that are still left to be returned to, or, or to address again as they were only so lightly teased in the original season. And these were elements like the war in heaven. Um, my personal favorite would be the, uh, well, two things. One, the use of uh, Zed and her mysterious powers, which allow her to glimpse the future, but then how those powers showed us a possibility through the detective Jim Corrigan, who fans of the DC Universe will recognize as the human name of the Spectre, the vengeful hand of God who brings sinners to face the punishment for their crimes. Usually not very good people at all. But this concept of watching the origin and development and growth of that character is an opportunity that I was really excited for the first time around and I'm hopeful that it's something we can return to. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. One of the articles I really like this week came from Comic Book Resources. And it's simply titled, What Happens to Clark Kent's Clothes When He Changes into Superman? It's part of a series where the author answers questions from anyone out there. And this time around, he was responding to reader Andrew Kay, who mentioned that while reading the comic with his eight-year-old son uh, the other night, his son pointed out something that hadn't really dawned on the... Uh, person writing the question, which is, Clark Kent is often seen tearing off his business suit to reveal his Superman suit and then running off to save the day, or flying off. This seems to disregard two things. One, why doesn't anyone notice? Two, what happens to his clothes afterwards? <laughs> now, according to the person writing the question, 
their son believes uh, that a robot goes back and collects it. And the person writing the question, Mr. Andrew Kay, asks, Is it ever alluded to exactly how Superman addresses this issue? And it's a fun little journey through history to check out um, sort of the development of this concept when it came up among the writers and artists. Uh, they point to Action Comics number one, where Superman is passing by a apartment where there is a domestic disturbance clearly occurring on the other side of the door. And in the hallway, Superman just takes off his clothes and then bursts into the room. And when he's done messing with the guy, who's clearly the abuser, he then goes back into the hallway, picks up his clothes, and walks off. Now, it does point out that one of the ways that the original writers, Jerry Siegel, Joe Shuster, would get around this problem is to just have Superman go to a private place, uh, supply closet, janitor's room, anywhere where he could be private. And then he would change clothes and be on his way, knowing that the clothes would be there when he gets back. There's even reference to a few moments when, during this time, Clark could be seen stripping all the way down to his socks before then changing into his Superman outfit. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't have a little bit of fun with the times when Superman had to change on the go. Um, in Action Comics number 9, they point out that Superman actually just dumps his clothes in an alley. And then they're even noticed by other people. Until Superman's able to distract them long enough to come back, snare his clothes, and then be on his way before anyone can discover his secret identity. It's also pointed out that around this time, there was no concept of Lois Lane figuring out that Superman was Clark Kent and how better to disguise his identity than just a change of clothes. So how long did it last? Superman dumping his clothes in a pile on the ground and coming back later to find them. According to this article in Action Comics number 13, interestingly enough, by an unknown author, and drawn by artist Al Plastino. Superman's friends were all replaced by androids designed to mess with him because they want to reveal his secret identity to the world. And during an exchange between robot or android Batman and android Lois Lane, it's pointed out that Clark's clothes are kept in a secret pouch in Superman's cape. Once you get past the idea that these are androids who know this and are explaining it to each other, you can focus on the concept that Superman uses super compression powers to squeeze all of his clothes into a tiny ball, and then that he had a special suit that was able to be compressed that same way, and somehow his eyeglasses fit in there. This no longer became a problem in post-crisis storytelling, when Superman just moved so fast that he changed clothes and the naked eye couldn't track it.
Now, there is a different scenario in Superman 10 Cents Adventure by Steve Siegel, Scott McDaniel, and Andy Owens that lists a series of stashes of clothes in the Daily Planet storage closets that Clark keeps handy so that when he can return, he can just change at work and try and avoid this whole problem. More recently, in the New 52, Superman had a suit that basically transformed into his costume. Currently, the example that Superman is just so fast that he simply changes before anyone can observe it works well enough to suit the mind of the reader and to satisfy the needs of the writers so that this is no longer a sticking point. But it was fun for me to think about how often it's been shown what a superhero has to do when they're trying to deal with their clothing, uh, which they want and eventually need to come back for. And it made me think of the early stories I would read or watch with Spider-Man, where he would take his clothes and bundle them into uh, a small spider sack that he could web against a wall or in a corner, sometimes rigging his camera with it, sometimes hiding the clothing somewhere else, and then rigging the camera up by itself. I love that there is a need within the storytelling that surrounds superheroes to give them logistic plausibility. And this was a fun story that points to the questions that eventually must come up, not only for the writers, but for all of their readers, and that when they're answered, provide a context, uh, a framework for how these superheroes interpret their world and the methods or thinking that leads to them finding solutions to keeping who they are and maintain the identity that gives them the privacy they still desire. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. On the video game side of the world, I'm intrigued by two different stories right now. The first is one that actually came to me back in February, around the end of February. It was posted on uh, February 22nd in the Hollywood Reporter. And it asks whether or not there's a morality in games. Essentially, are players prone to good or evil choices? And then it points to uh, an interesting fact, which is that titles like Assassin's Creed Odyssey keep statistics on how audiences interact with in-game ethical dilemmas. Now, the story, of course, covers the myriad of ways that games present moral questions to gamers, characters, and how that defines the gameplay moving forward. I'm always intrigued by this because the closer we get to concepts like artificial intelligence and smarter gaming, the more we are going to face how these AIs are geared 
to interpret information and to perform whatever functions we end up asking of them or whatever functions they're designed or created for. And a question of morality is something that will not only continue to exist because of the value that uh, is placed on it, more often than not from uh, our early upbringing, and if it's in a moral environment, it's uh, it's something that creates a standard and then asks if other things are measured up against it. But more importantly, as this article points out, for the value that it brings to the game. And then it goes in close for a, a viewing of an example provided by the game Assassin's Creed Odyssey. And how one of the uh, sources for this article describes how um, one of the missions at the beginning of the game, the main character finds a group of people infected by a plague, or the plague, and a priest wants to kill them. The issue here is that the family is innocent of anything other than being sick, and the main character of the game is faced with the moral dilemma of supporting or opposing the priest. It interestingly points out it interestingly points out through t statistics it interestingly points out that the statistic tracking that is used reveals 68% of the players in the game decided to fa save the family. And this leads into um, a deeper discussion about the value that is created through games by using morality to make them more complex and more complete. And I really enjoy the quote made near the end of the article, which says that in games where there is little or no moral dilemma, the game actually plays flatter. And that's an issue for gamers who are looking for something to engage them. It's the moral choices that they're faced with that continue to bring them back. And by keeping morality a key factor in games, game makers can always guarantee that they'll be providing uh, a crucial element that gives their games a life it might not have had. And without it, gives these games a depth they would not have without it. Referring back to my theme from last week about making commitments and maintaining your own expectations, 
my podcast conversation with Tara Masson about what you can do when you can't do what you want will still be coming out this week, although not in tandem with this recording of Weekly Wrap-Up. I had originally hoped to have them paired together, but in order to make sure that I provided the quality that you deserve, I needed to take more time than I originally anticipated. I do have another segment to give you some insight on the areas we'll be discussing and the topics we'll be covering. And of course, you can make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast to receive the update. When that conversation goes live. In the meantime, enjoy this clip. And you, what you're offering here is a much more centered approach to that. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what does that mean exactly? Like, how mm-hmm. do you how do you fake it without feeling inauthentic? How do you stay authentic while trying to also do something that you're almost willing into existence yes. um, through this act? And then it, it takes on more of a, no, you're not trying to just, you know, play a fraud. Right. You're trying to, you know, start to create something. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe it's simply the creation of intention. Maybe it's the creation of mindset, but that you're using this idea to bring yourself to this central point of, well, let me at least consider this mm-hmm. before I, I step forward. Yes. And, uh, I really like that introduction. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's really important, too, because you hear fake it till you make it. But then maybe when you finally arrive to where you want to be, you still are carrying around that fraudulent feeling, that icky feeling of maybe being an imposter. So if you flip the script when you're not able to do what you want to do or have what you want or just feel stuck in general, if you take this situation and decide, A, okay, this is what it is, A, acceptance, B, I have to move on with my life. Like I can't just stay paralyzed, but I can begin acting as if things are going to turn out in my favor, maybe not the way I want them to, but things will turn out well and I am safe. I am okay. And it allows you to slightly separate yourself from a problem, right? Yes. Um, I'm a big sucker for, for, film and story that that makes reference to how we used to do things and i always love the nautical reference from uh the old star trek show where they would say where to now well second star to the left straight on till morning and it was this very sweet idea of pick a direction and that's where you're heading yeah you know and it's it's you know it's about making that choice and going instead of knowing the why the where the how and it also lends to that sort of mystery and, and wonder that is kind of uh, maybe a, a mental image that might come up for those who, who look at the sea as being, you know, something that's full of, you know, the idea that for so many sailors, when they headed out from or when they set off from from land and were venturing out, they had an idea, but they never knew what they were going to discover. 
Right. And, you know, you've got this sense of, well, I don't know what I'm going to discuss, <laughs> but I know that I've got this guide point that I've I've set up for myself and I'm going to steer towards that. And that's my direction right now. And, you know, I really like that. That's how, you know, this comes across as direction. You know, it's not always about being, you know, but it's about getting towards or mm-hmm. working towards or forward motion. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it's a great example. You know, so often we're looking for role models or, you know, we're looking for ways to find a way through something. And while we've talked that there can be risk to that, especially who you might ascribe to or who you might decide to follow. Uh, oftentimes, if that's not a good path, well, maybe following a direction based on intention above anything else, above mm-hmm. a person, maybe set the role model based on on that. The focus of your direction. <coughs> I like I've got it. my own cough. Oh, no, you can't I do have... it by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. One hot ticket item on the agenda of movie and comic book fans alike is the premiere of Captain Marvel on Thursday. Starring Brie Larson and Samuel L. Jackson, this story actually takes place many years before the appearance of Tony Stark and the cast of comic book heroes who have come to make up the Avengers and their fringe cohorts. Brie Larson and Captain Marvel will provide not only a glimpse into the early days of S.H.I.E.L.D., when Samuel L. Jackson still had two eyes, but also set up the plot points that will reveal just what role Captain Marvel and other elements of this story will take prominence in next month's Avengers Endgame. Interestingly, I have heard through the grapevine that not all reviews have been 5-star, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, or completely exuberant. That there have been some either grumblings or concerns. And I haven't yet given them a read because I try to avoid influencing my opinion before I go in to see a movie like this. But I will be curious to hear how I feel after I've seen the movie and get the chance to read these reviews and what your thoughts might be. The other video game story that has piqued my curiosity is the announcement that Apex Legends already has 50 million players after one month. The game had a surprise release one month ago, and in its first weekend saw upward of 2 million people playing at the same time. Now, there are no indications that this means that it will catch the... uh, leader of the pack, Fortnite, which had over 200 million players as of this fall. But it does point to the interesting question as to whether or not Respawn can keep this momentum going. 
This story was originally featured in Engadget by John Fingus. And it does point to the level of popularity that Fortnite has not only achieved, but sustained. It points also to this reality that exists within the Battle Royale gamers. that finding a way to stay relevant becomes more difficult with greater success. And that striving to knock the king off the mountain and take the throne might require more work or and unsustainability compared with finding a strong, healthy, consistent, while not always rapidly growing customer and fan base that can lead to years, maybe even decades of sustained gameplay. It's not quite a tortoise-in-the-hare scenario, but it is a question of is your game in this for the sprint, or is it in it for the marathon? And I think also, does either one make a difference in why you play one game over the other? And that's all the time we're going to have if only because the week is slowly ending, the weekend fast approaching, and next week will soon be here, which means another chance for a weekly wrap, a chance to talk, share, and more. Your response will help us decide what else the weekly wrap-up can and might and will include. So thank you again for listening, and if you find yourself with an extra moment at the end of this recording, and you feel like you've got the inspiration to share, subscribe, or just tell a friend, well thank you for that too.